0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So before we jump into the text, I'd like to talk a little bit about grilled cheese sandwiches. If that's all right with y'all. Some of y'all are like, man, I'm already hungry for lunch. This is going to be difficult. Um, But grilled cheese sandwiches are are a great sandwich to talk about because we've all had one and because they're incredibly simple. Uh, The ingredients of a grilled cheese sandwich are bread and cheese and generally some sort of fat. Um, Butter is ideal. If you're not into butter, I don't know what to do for you. Um, But a grilled cheese sandwich is really simple. But if you've ever had a really, really good grilled cheese sandwich, it's just another level of deliciousness and satisfaction because it's this perfect combination of salt and fat and heat all melded together into something that is the perfect marriage with a bowl of tomato basil soup. Or the soup of your choice, but tomato basil soup is really the best option. And and I want to bring this up because though a grilled cheese sandwich is very simple in its ingredients, very common, you can order one at almost any restaurant. When you get a really good one, you realize that it's about the details. I consider myself a master grilled cheese chef, um, and, and I have a strategy, which is I heat both sides of the bread, already buttered, and, I, and once I heat the inside portion of the bread, Then I flip it and place the cheese on the hot bread so that the cheese begins melting so that I don't have to burn the outside in order for the cheese to melt. And so it's in the details that you get an excellent grilled cheese sandwich. And I mention this today because we're looking at an account in the Gospel of John that if we're at all familiar with the ministry of Jesus will seem extremely common. Jesus heals a sick person. And while... On face value, that's amazing and it's wonderful and it's glorious. If we read the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see occasions where Jesus will show up to a town and there will be a huge crowd of people following him and the text will say that he healed all of the sick among them. And so why does John choose to focus on one account of Jesus healing one sick person to reveal this glorious thing about Jesus? Jesus. And I'm convinced that it's in the details that we'll find what John wants for us this morning. This text is a lot like a grilled cheese sandwich in that way. See, the signs of Jesus point to the nature of his kingdom. They show us something that he wants to teach us about the kingdom that he's establishing, about the new creation that he is establishing in his life, eventual death, and resurrection so let's just start by reading through the text one more time together and just get an idea of what's going on in the narrative. And then we'll look closer at the details. Beginning in verse 46 of chapter 4, John writes, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill, And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. There are a few details in this text that I want to point out. The first is beginning in verse 46, the text begins by saying, So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Now, now, John, as a gospel writer, is notorious for giving the reader signposts. And so this is a signpost. He's telling us something important. Last week, Reed talked about Jesus turning water to wine in Cana, back in chapter 2. And now John is telling us that Jesus is back where he had turned the water wine. And this is important, one, because we should be expecting something else amazing to happen, just like it did the last time Jesus was in Cana, but also because often in the Bible, when we have two important details that are essentially identical, separated, in the middle we will find some meaning for why the, end, the, the book ends, if you will, matter. So what happened between Jesus being in Cana at the wedding, turning water to wine, and him being back in Cana now? Well, the most important thing that happened is in chapter 3, Jesus had a conversation with another official. The official whose son he heals is a Roman official, but the official that he spoke to in chapter 3 was a Jewish official named Nicodemus. And the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is maybe the most important conversation in the entire Gospel of John. It's when we begin to see what it is that Jesus wants to understand, us to understand about. And this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus and asked Jesus the nature of what Jesus was accomplishing, how it would be that people would enter into Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus said something really interesting in that text. He said to Nicodemus, a conversation between Jesus and one man, he said, Y'all must be born again. The word you there is the plural. It would best translate to a Texan or southern y'all. He says y'all must be born again. Speaking of the entire Jewish people, the entire nation of Israel, Jesus says to Nicodemus, If you want to enter into my kingdom, you all must be born again. Temple worship and obedience to the law and knowledge of the scriptures is not enough. You need to be born again. And then he tells Nicodemus how that will happen. He says there's going to be a time when the Son of Man, referring to himself, is held up like the serpent in the wilderness. Referring to a time when the people of Israel in the days of Moses had poisonous snakes come into their camp. And God told Moses and Aaron to get a serpent and and put it on a stick and hold it up in the middle of the camp so that whoever looked at the serpent on the stick would be healed of the venom that they had been bit with. And Jesus says, this is what my ministry is going to be like. I'm going to be held up before the nations that whoever looks to me might be healed. And then he goes on and gives some of the most famous words in the history of Christianity. And he tells Nicodemus that God has so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So this conversation with Nicodemus comes down to two things. You need to be born again through belief in the son who will be held up before the nations. And this is an important detail because in the conversation that we look at here in chapter 4, Jesus speaking to the official. After the official asks Jesus, will you heal my son? He's at the point of death. Jesus says, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Another time, one chapter later, Jesus once again talking to one man, uses the second person plural. He says, unless y'all see signs and wonders... You will not believe. Once again, Jesus is not using his conversation with this one man to simply speak to him, but rather to speak to all who would listen. He's saying that that the nations want to see signs and wonders from God. That the people of Israel and the Gentiles alike want to see signs and wonders from God, but what it will come down to in this text we'll see is simple belief. Because the official is not deterred when Jesus gives him this strange answer. He goes on to say, sir, just come down before my child dies. He says, I, I'm not concerned with the signs and the wonders. I'm concerned that my son is going to die. And Jesus says, go home, your son will live. And then what happens? It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. From a distance, Jesus gave a word of life so that nobody who was on looking this interaction between the official and Jesus could see the son being healed. They couldn't see the miraculous nature of the fever dropping and of energy being recovered of color coming back to this boy's skin. He just simply spoke a word and it was so and the man believed and And he got home, and his servants are running out to tell him, you won't believe it, your son is well. And he says, when did it happen? And we get to the second key detail in the text. It says, yesterday at the seventh hour. When we read the Bible and we see numbers, they're almost never an accident. Ink and papyrus were far too scarce and expensive in ancient days to waste words. John could have left out what hour it was that the son was healed, but he specifically says that it was the seventh hour. And the seventh hour is significant because all throughout the Bible, the number seven is significant. The earth was created in seven days. The number seven refers to the Sabbath day of rest, which is the most important day for the people of Israel. It speaks to completeness and perfection and rest and life. And it was at the seventh hour that the boy's life was saved. It was at the seventh hour when rest came to this man's household. It was at the seventh hour when belief came to the household, as the man and his whole household are told to have believed. So the sign is not simply about a boy being healed. It's about a conversation with a Jewish official a chapter before, and it's about rest and completeness and perfection. A the theologian that I really respect says that, that he's convinced that the seven signs in the Gospel of John all correlate to the same day in the creation account in Genesis. The first sign was Jesus turning water into wine, revealing his glory by taking something common and making it lovely and wonderful. And in the first day of creation, God, by the power of his word, revealed his glory by taking a formless, dark void and saying, let there be light, allowing his glory to shine upon his creation. But this is the second sign, and the second day of creation, I did not uh, immediately see a connection. If we were to go to Genesis chapter 1, This is what it says about the second day. It says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. What does that have to do with Jesus healing this official son? The second day of creation is, after all, the one that we ignore the most because it's probably the most confusing to us as to what exactly is happening and why it's important. But what's happening in the second day is really significant because God is taking this watery sphere of earth and he's separating waters and a lot of scientists like to look at this text and say, bah humbug, the ancient people believed this and that about the way the universe was and it was foolish. But, but really all that the author of Genesis is saying is that, that on the second day, the earth was covered in water and God established waters above it. Which we know to be true. If we look above us, what will we see but clouds and an atmosphere full of water. So what was it that God was creating on the second day? He was creating earth's desperate need for God's provision. For soon God would populate the earth with plants and animals, all who would be desperate for rain to come down and give them life. It was in this expanse between the waters above the sky and the waters below where the need for God's grace is most felt. But still, what does this have to do with Jesus healing the official son? Well, if we look at the placement of this account in the Gospel of John, what we'll see is that it's sandwiched between two other accounts where Jesus is, is speaking with and ministering to an individual. The one previous is, is he's speaking to a Samaritan woman at a water well. And just following this account, he heals a man at a pool of water. This sign is the expanse between the waters in the Gospel of John. It's the expanse between the waters where we realize the desperate need for God to save us from the point of death like the official son. It's the expanse between the waters where we feel so desperate because apart from God's word of grace and life being spoken over us, we have no hope. So what occurred in the second day of creation is significant. In all of this, what we see is that that Jesus is telling us something very important about his kingdom. He heals at the seventh hour because Jesus' kingdom has come to provide rest and security and provision for the nations. He has come to allow us to cease from our toiling where we might try to please both God and man by providing for us salvation through the Son being lifted up upon a stick that we might look at him for life and for healing. Is significant because Jesus has come to be the bridge in the expanse between the waters. The waters below being a humanity desperate for God's forgiveness and for His grace and for His justice and for His mercy. For Him to bring unity. And God the Father above and Jesus saying, I am the bridge. I am what will fill the expanse so that grace might rain down upon all the nations. Really, this text is expounding upon the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. In Jesus healing the official's son, he's giving us an object lesson on the kind of salvation that Jesus provides. The official's son, like the official, is not Jewish. Jewish. He's likely not obedient to the Torah. He likely doesn't observe the Sabbath. He likely doesn't know all about Moses and and the people of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt. He just recognizes that Jesus is the one whose word will give his son life. And then what happens? He himself believed and all his household. See, at the word of God establishing life, not only can an individual be saved from the brink of death, but the entire household of God can be reborn. If you want to enter Jesus' kingdom, as he told Nicodemus, you all must be born again. And how will that come? It will come By believing in him as he is held up upon a stick. See, the ministry of Jesus and the signs of Jesus ultimately consummate near the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus will be arrested, betrayed, beaten, abused, mocked, and scorned, and eventually nailed to a stick and hung up so that all might look upon him. And some will look upon him and scoff. And what will they ask for but for signs and wonders? They'll say, if you're the Son of God, let yourself down. But some looked upon him and still do and believed. Surely this must be the Son of God. But it doesn't end with the Son of God being held up upon a stick, bearing the weight of our sin and shame, thus... Eliminating the great expanse, that second day expanse that we've felt since the beginning of time. But though he died, he rose again. See, we are like the official son. Apart from the grace of God, we are at the brink of death. We feel it physically as year after year Our bodies get older, and we see those around us get sick. We see our family members suffer and eventually die. Humans are always at the brink of death, but there's an even greater death than the physical that we will experience that we're on the brink of, and that is the death of dying apart from God, dying apart from knowing that great bridge of the expanse. We're at the brink of death because we have offended a holy God. We're at the brink of death because apart from the work of God and the provision of His Spirit, we can never provide any amount of real meaning, any amount of real joy, no true satisfaction, no true change in the world. So we can look upon the Son and beg for signs and wonders as He hangs on the cross, or we can look upon him as he hangs on the cross and be utterly satisfied that he has done that for us. And utterly overjoyed when though he is buried, he yet rises. Establishing the fullness of seventh day rest as he conquers death forever. uh, Inaugurating the new kingdom, the new creation that he's revealing to us in his signs. See, it's in the resurrection of Jesus that we enter into an eternal seventh day where we can rest from all of our toiling, rest from our need to please God and rest within the grace of God as it rains down upon us through the expanse provided in the salvation and merit of Jesus Christ alone. And so if you're with us this morning and you've yet to put your hope in Jesus, I want you to know that not only are you like the official son and that you are at the brink of death in need of Jesus to provide a word of life over you, but you are like the official son in that he is completely willing to do so. Completely willing to call you blessed, forgiven, beloved, son, daughter, whole, completely willing to tell you to no longer toil and to rest in His grace. This is the God who came and said, to all who are weary and heaven laden, heavy laden, behold, I come to give rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you trust in Him? You need not signs or wonders to feel the fullness of, of rebirth into the family and kingdom of God, which is the eternal Sabbath day of rest. Not that we no longer have jobs to do, but that the jobs that we do no longer define us. They no longer give us meaning apart from the meaning that we gain in God calling us son or daughter because we've hoped in His Son who's been held up upon a stick on our behalf. And if you're a believer in the room this morning, let us always aspire to the faith of the official to just believe God at his word. And let us aspire to the joy of the servants who upon seeing the work of God done in their midst run out to tell all who we encountered that at the seventh hour the grace of God has come. Death no longer reigns here, but life and joy and peace are now the signpost of our household. This morning we celebrate baptism. And we celebrate baptism and it's utterly appropriate to do so as we've considered this text because what we are celebrating is that three members in our midst... Though they were at the brink of death, believed upon the Son and have entered into his eternal rest. His rest that begins at the moment of belief, not upon the moment of physical death. The rest that inaugurates life and joy and labor in the kingdom marked by life and joy and peace and grace. But in baptism, we don't only celebrate that God has done this for the three people who will be immersed in the waters this morning. But we celebrate that beautiful, second-person plural, y'all. Jesus has died that y'all might be born again. Y'all being all the nations of the earth y'all being all who labor and toil, y'all being all who are in desperate need of God to reign his grace through the chasm, through the expanse, that we might experience the glory of Sabbath rest with our Savior forever. And so as we pray and prepare the table, would you come feast upon the grace and life and sustenance that is only provided through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are desperate and needy for your son. We are hopeless apart from him but with him we abound in hope and thanksgiving and joy and so would you by the power of your spirit draw us to you this morning that we might worship more fully experience rest more satisfyingly that we might no longer try to establish meaning for ourselves in our good works or in our relationships or in the things that we do but that we might look upon the Sun at the cross and the empty tomb at the throne room of heaven and be satisfied in him and would you use us as your people to establish rest and joy and life in the places we encounter in this neighborhood in this neighborhood would we see many who are part of the y'all be born again And even this morning, Lord, through the faithfulness of your word, through the provision of your spirit, through the administration of your sacraments, through the singing of songs and the proclamation of your gospel, would you draw those in the room this morning who have yet to believe upon you, to take upon the easy yoke of rest and to be freed from the brink of death, that they might have life with you forever. Father, we praise you and thank you have provided for us all that we need in your Son. And would we come with empty hands knowing that you require nothing of us. It's in Jesus' name that we